Chapter 46 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Chapter 46 Frank Russell's Opinions Clayton was still pursuing the object which he had undertaken. He determined to petition the legislature to grant to the slave the right of seeking legal redress in cases of injury, and, as a necessary to this, the right of bearing testimony in legal action. As Frank Russell was candidate for the next state legislature, he visited him for the purpose of getting him to present such a petition. Our readers will look in upon the scene in a small, retired back room of Frank's office, where his bachelor establishment as yet was kept. Clayton had been giving him an earnest account of his plans and designs. The only safe way of gradual emancipation, said Clayton, is the reforming of law, and the beginning of all legal reform must, of course, be giving the slave legal personality. It's of no use to enact laws for his protection in his family state or in any other condition till we open to him an avenue through which, if they are violated, his grievances can be heard and can be proved. A thousand laws for his comfort without this are only a dead letter. I know it, said Frank Russell. There never was anything under heaven so atrocious as our slave code. It's a bottomless pit of oppression. Nobody knows it so well as we lawyers. But then, Clayton, it's quite another thing. What's to be done about it? Why, I think it's very plain what's to be done, said Clayton. Go right forward and enlighten the community. Get the law reformed. That's what I have taken for my work. And, Frank, you must help me. Hmm, said Frank. Now, the fact is, Clayton, if I wore a stiff white neckcloth and had a D.D. to my name, I should tell you that the interest of Zion stood in the way, and that it was my duty to preserve my influence for the sake of being able to take care of the Lord's affairs. But, as I am not so fortunate, I must just say, without further preface, that it won't do for me to compromise Frank Russell's interests. Clayton, I can't afford it. That's just it. It won't do. You see, our party can't take up that kind of thing. It would be just setting up a fort from which our enemies could fire on us at their leisure. If I go into the legislature, I have to go in by my party. I have to represent my party. And, of course, I can't afford to do anything that will compromise them. "'Well, now, Frank,' said Clayton, seriously and soberly, "'are you going to put your neck into such a noose as this "'to be led about all your life long, "'the bond-slave of a party?' "'Not I, by a good deal,' said Russell. "'The noose will change ends one of these days, "'and I'll drag the party. "'But we must all stoop to conquer at first. And do you really propose nothing more to yourself than how to rise in the world? 
said Clayton. Isn't there any great and good work that has beauty for you? Isn't there anything in heroism and self-sacrifice? Well, said Russell, after a short pause, maybe there is. But after all, Clayton, is there? The world looks to me like a confounded humbug, a great hoax, and everybody is going in for grub. And I say, hang it all. Why shouldn't I have some of the grub as well as the rest? Man shall not live by bread alone, said Clayton. Well, bread's a pretty good thing, though, after all, said Frank, shrugging his shoulders. But, but said Clayton, Frank, I am in earnest, and you've got to be. I want you to go with me down to the depths of your soul, where the water is still, and talk to me on honor. This kind of half-joking way that you have isn't a good sign, Frank. It's too old for you. A man that makes a joke of everything at your age, what will he do before he is fifty? Now, Frank, do you know that this system of slavery, if we don't reform it, will eat out this country like a cancer? I know it, said Frank. For that matter, it has eaten into us pretty well. Now, said Clayton, if for nothing else, if we had no feeling of humanity for the slave, we must do something for the sake of the whites, for this is carrying us back into barbarism as fast as we can go. Virginia has been ruined by it, run all down. North Carolina, I believe, has the unenviable notoriety of being the most ignorant and poorest state in the Union. I don't believe there's any country in old despotic Europe where the poor are more miserable, vicious, and degraded than they are in our slave states. And it's depopulating us. Our men of ability in the lower classes, who want to be respectable, won't stand it. They will go off to some state where things move on. Hundreds and hundreds move out of North Carolina every year to the western states. And it's all this unnatural organization of society that does it. We have got to contemplate some mode of abolishing this evil. We have got to take the first step towards progress. Sometime, or we ourselves are all undone. Clayton, said Frank in a tone now quite as serious as his own, I tell you as a solemn fact that we can't do it. Those among us who have got the power in their hands are determined to keep it, and they are wide awake. They don't mean to let the first step be taken, because they don't mean to lay down their power. The three-fifths vote that they get by it is a thing they won't part with. They'll die first. Why, just look at it. There is at least twenty-four millions of property held this way. What do you suppose these men care about the poor whites and the ruin of the state and all that? The poor whites may go to the devil for all of them, and as for the ruin of the state, it won't come in their day, and after us the deluge, you know, that's the talk. These men are our masters, they are yours, they are mine, they are masters of everybody in these United States. They can crack their whips over the head of any statesman or clergyman from Maine to New Orleans that disputes their will. They govern the country. 
Army, Navy, Treasury, Church, State, everything is theirs, and whoever is going to get up must go up their ladder. There isn't any other ladder. There isn't an interest, not a body of men in these whole United States that they can't control. And I tell you, Clayton, you might as well throw ashes into the teeth of the North Wind as undertake to fight their influence. Now, if there was any hope of doing any good by this, if there was the least prospect of succeeding, why, I'd join in with you. But there isn't. The whole thing is a fixed fact, and why shouldn't I climb on it as well as everybody else? Nothing is fixed, said Clayton. That isn't fixed in right. God and nature fight against evil. Well, they do, I suppose, but it's a long campaign, said Frank, and I must be on the side that will win while I'm alive. Now, Clayton, to you I always speak the truth. I won't humbug you. I worship success. I am of Frederick the Great's creed that providence goes with the strongest battalions. I wasn't made for defeat. I must have power. The preservation of this system, whole and entire, is to be the policy of the leaders of this generation. The fact is, they stand where it must be their policy. They must spread it over the whole territory. They must get the balance of power in the country to build themselves up against the public opinion of mankind. Why, Clayton, moral sentiment, as you call it, is a humbug. The whole world acquiesces in what goes. They always have. There is a great outcry about slavery now, but let it succeed, and there won't be. When they can outvote the northern states, they'll put them down. They have kept them subservient by intrigue so far, and by and by they'll have the strength to put them down by force. England makes a fuss now, but let them only succeed, and she'll be civil as sheep. Of course, men always make a fuss about injustice when they have nothing to gain by holding their tongues. But England's mouth can be stopped with cotton. You'll see it. They love trade and hate war, and so the fuss of anti-slavery will die out in the world. Now, when you see what a poor hoax human nature is, what's the use of bothering? The whole race together aren't worth a button, Clayton, and self-sacrifice for such fools is a humbug. That's my program. Well, Frank, you have made a clean breast, so will I. The human race, as you say, may be a humbug, but it's every man's duty to know for himself that he isn't one. I am not. I do not worship success and will not. And if a cause is a right and honorable one, I will labor in it till I die, whether there's any chance of succeeding or not. Well, now, said Frank Russell, I dare say it's so. I respect your sort of folks. You form an agreeable heroic poem, with which one can amuse the tediousness of life. I suppose it won't do you any good to tell you that you're getting immensely unpopular with what you're doing. No, said Clayton, it won't. I am really afraid, said Russell, that they'll mob you some of these bright days. Very well, 
said Clayton. Oh, of course, I knew it would be very well. But say, Clayton, what do you want to get up a petition on that point for? Why don't you get up one to prevent the separation of families? There's been such a must made about that in Europe and all around the world that it's rather the fashion to move about that a little. Politicians like to appear to intend to begin to do something about it. It has a pleasing effect and gives the northern editors and ministers something to say as an apology for our sins. Besides, there are a good many simple-hearted folks who don't see very deep into things that really think it's possible to do something effective on the subject. If you get up a petition for that, you might take the tide with you, and I do something about it myself. You know very well, Frank, for I told you that it's no use to pass laws for that without giving the slaves power to sue or give evidence in case of violation. The improvement I propose touches the root of the matter. That's the fact, it surely does, said Russell, and for that very reason you'll never carry it. Now, Clayton, I just want to ask you one question. Can you fight? Will you fight? Will you wear a bowie knife and pistol and shoot every fellow down that comes at you? Why, no, of course, Frank. You know that I never was a fighting man. Such brute ways are not to my taste. Then, my dear sir, you shouldn't set up for a reformer in southern states. Now, I'll tell you one thing, Clayton, that I've heard. You made some remarks at a public meeting up at E that have staked a mad dog cry, which I suppose came from Tom Gordon. See here, have you noticed this article in the Trumpet of Liberty? said he, looking over a confused stack of papers on his table. Where's the article? Oh, here it is. At the same time, he handed Clayton a sheet bearing the motto, Liberty and Union, now and forever, one and inseparable and pointed to an article headed, Covert Abolitionism, Citizens, Beware. We were present a few evenings ago at the closing speech delivered before the Washington Agricultural Society, in the course of which the speaker, Mr. Edward Clayton, gratuitously wandered away from his subject to make inflammatory and seditious comments on the state of laws which regulate our Negro population. It is time for the friends of our institutions to be awake. Such remarks dropped in the ear of a restless and ignorant population will be a fruitful source of sedition and insurrection. This young man is supposed to be infected with the virus of northern abolitionists. We cannot too narrowly watch the course of such individuals, for the only price at which we can maintain liberty is eternal vigilance. Mr. Clayton belongs to one of our oldest and most respected families, which makes his conduct the more inexcusable. Clayton perused this with a quiet smile, which was usual with him. The hand of Job is in that thing, said Frank Russell. I'm sure I said very little, said Clayton. I was only showing the advantage to our agriculture of a higher tone of moral feeling amongst our laborers which, of course, led me to speak of the state of the law regulating them. I said nothing but what everybody knows. But don't you know, Clayton, said Russell, that if a fellow has an enemy, 
anybody bearing him the least ill will that he puts a tremendous power in his hands by making such remarks? Why our common people are so ignorant that they are in the hands of anybody who wants to use them? They are just like a swarm of bees. You can manage them by beating on a tin pan. And Tom Gordon has got the tin pan now, I fancy. Tom intends to be a swell. He is a born bully, and he'll lead a rabble. And so you must take care. Your family is considerable for you, but after all, it won't stand you instead for everything. Who have you got to back you? Who have you talked with? Well, said Clayton, I've talked with some of the ministry. And of course, said Frank, you found that the leadings of providence don't indicate that they are to be martyrs. You have their prayers in secret, I presume, and if you ever get the cause of the upper hillside, they'll come out and preach a sermon for you. Now, Clayton, I'll tell you what I'll do. If Tom Gordon attacks you, I'll pick a quarrel with him and shoot him right off the reel. My stomach is nice about these matters, and that sort of thing won't compromise me with my party. Thank you, said Clayton. I shall not trouble you. My dear fellow, said Russell, you philosophers are very much mistaken about the use of carnal weapons. As long as you wrestle with flesh and blood, you'd better use fleshly means. At any rate, a gentlemanly brace of pistols wouldn't hurt you. And in fact, Clayton, I am serious. You must wear pistols. There are no two ways about it. Because if these fellows know that a man wears pistols and will use them, it keeps them off. They have an objection to being shot, as this is all the world they are likely to have. And I think, Clayton, you can fire off a pistol in as edifying and dignified a manner as you can say a grace on proper occasions. The fact is, before long, there will be a roll kicked up. I'm pretty sure of it. Tom Gordon is a deeper fellow than you'd think, and he has booked himself for Congress, and he means to go in on the thunder and blazes principle, which will give him the vote of all the rabble. He'll go into Congress to do the fighting and slashing. There always must be a bully or two there, you know, to knock down fellows that you can't settle any other way. And nothing would suit him better than to get his name up, than heading a crusade against an abolitionist. Well, said Clayton, if it's come to that, that we can't speak and discuss freely in our own state, where are we? Where are we, my dear fellow? Why, I know where we are, and if you don't, it's time you did. Discuss freely. Certain we can. On one side of the question, or on both sides of any other question than this. But you can't discuss freely, and they can't afford to let you as long as they mean to keep their power. Do you suppose they are going to let these poor devils, whites, get their bandages off their eyes that make them so easy to lead now? It would be a pretty bill to pay if they did. Just now, these fellows are in as safe and comfortable a condition for use as a party could desire, because they have got votes, and we have the guiding of them, 
and they rage and swear and tear for our institutions because they are fools and don't know what hurts them. Then there's the niggers. Those fellows are deep. They have as long ears as little pitchers, and they are such a sort of fussy set that whatever is going on in the community is always in their mouths, and so comes up that old fear of insurrection. That's the awful word, Clayton. That lies at the bottom of a good many things in our state, more than we choose to let on. Those Negroes are a black well. You never know what's at the bottom. Well, said Clayton, the only way, the only safeguard to prevent this is reform. They are a patient set, and will bear a great while, and if they only see that anything is being done, it will be an effectual prevention. If you want insurrection, the only way is to shut down the escape valve. For will ye, nil ye, the steam must rise. You see, in this day, mines will grow. They are growing. There's no help for it, and there's no force like the force of growth. I have seen a rock split in two by the growing of an elm tree that wanted light and air and would make its way up through it. Look at all the aristocracies of Europe. They have gone down under this force. Only one has stood, that of England. And how came that to stand? Because it knew when to yield. Because it never can find discussion. Because it gave way gracefully before the growing force of the people. That's the reason it stands today while the aristocracy of France has been blown into atoms. My dear fellow, said Russell. This is all very true and convincing, no doubt. But you won't make our aristocracy believe it. They have mounted the lightning, and they are going to ride it whip and spur. They are going to annex Cuba, and the Sandwich Islands, and the Lord knows what, and have a great and splendid slaveholding empire. And the North is going to be what Greece was to Rome. We shall govern it, and it will attend to the arts of life for us. The South understands governing. We are trained to rule from the cradle. We have the leisure to rule. We have nothing else to do. The free states have their factories, and their warehouses, and their schools, and their internal improvements to take up their minds. And if we are careful, and don't tell them too plain where we are taking them, they will never know it till they get there. Well, said Clayton, there's one element of force that you've left out in your calculations. And what's that? said Russell. God, said Clayton. I don't know anything about him, said Russell. You may have occasion to learn one of these days, said Clayton. I believe he is alive yet. End of chapter 46 Frank Russell's Opinions